Amen. Our reading from God's holy word this morning comes from Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9 and extending to verse 15. Please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, now as we come before you, having heard your word read in the presence of your people, we look with anticipation at this, the text of scripture, specifically those words in verse 15, to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We pray, Father, that you would guide us into the way of wisdom as we consider this command from your word. We ask that your spirit would be mightily present with us now, and that he would, through his power, bed down any defenses that would rise up in our hearts to receiving this instruction, that he would ward away any evil force that would seek to snatch away the seed of this truth. And we ask that he would till the soil of our hearts, that it might be fallow, in receiving this seed that it might be planted, rooted, sprouted, and ultimately fruit to the purposes of your glory and the good of your church. Lord, we need your help. And so we would now submit our hearts and lives solely and wholly to you. Come now and meet with us and show us the beautiful things that you have in store for us. From this, your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're joining us for the first time this morning, once again, I just want to say welcome. I'm glad you're here. And want you to know that you're in the middle of a journey that we've been taking as a congregation through these 13 verses at the end of Romans chapter 12. We started a number of weeks ago now in verse 9, and we will conclude our journey at the end of this month in verse 21, looking at what we might call a portrait of life in the family of God, a picture of what it means to be the church, and individually, what it means to be members of the church, to love the Lord to follow the Lord and to serve the purposes of the Lord. 
the last few weeks together, we've been looking at a number of challenging texts from the Scripture, going back to verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints, seeking to show hospitality. We said we are to be a people who welcome each other in with open arms, and in the midst of that welcome, we look for and listen for the needs of God's people, and we want to meet those needs with the resources that the Lord has given to us. Last week, we, we spoke about those who are enemies, who, those who would seek to persecute us, those who would levy curses against us, and instead of fighting fire with fire, we said, we're going to bless in the midst of cursing, and we're going to love and turn the other cheek for those who would need our, our, our shirt, we're going to give them our coat also. We're going to, instead of, of being like in the attacks that would come from the outside world, we're going to bend over backwards to show the love of Christ. Why? Because we've been a people who were once enemies of God. And he, in his graciousness, did not levy upon us curses, but he gave to us blessings. And he clothed us with the glorious righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in the resource of what's been given to us, we can now extend to others that grace that has been bestowed upon us. Well, week after week, as we've been walking through the commands, we've been walking through them just like that. We've been seeing what the call is that's on our life from this text, but we've also been taking a quick pivot to look into the face of Christ and to see how has Christ already fulfilled this command? How has he shown us through his life, through his ministry, through the gospel, how has he already fulfilled that which he calls us to, and then how does that fulfilling transform our own hearts and lives so that we begin to walk according to this law with grace and with joy. Well, in a similar way, this text that comes before us this morning is a challenging one, to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. The call upon this text is mighty, significant upon each of us in this room. And it touches us at all a very deep place. It's a part of our everyday lives, the shedding of tears and the shouts of joy. And often, I don't know if you look back over the course of your days, even this last week, it certainly was the case with me, often there are tears that are shed and shouts of joy within the span of an hour. Uh, even yesterday, I received a, a call from a member in a congregation who was suffering and in the moment of that grief and in the moment of that sadness and in the sound of tears on the other side of that phone, we wept with each other. And then almost minutes later, my wife walks into the room and she gives me news of a happiness that one of our dear friends who's gone through some great suffering and a terrible divorce a handful of years ago is, is going to be remarried to a loving and godly man. Right there in the span of just a, a few minutes, we were weeping with those who weep and we were rejoicing with those who rejoice. In fact, in the Sheridan family, it's been a tale of two Saturdays from the last couple of Saturdays. Yesterday was our 17th anniversary, Christy and I. 
It was a day of rejoicing. As we look back to July 7th, 2001, and we remembered that small little country church in Mississippi, the hottest day in human history. And just as we were entering into the sanctuary and the service began, the air conditioner quit. And we sweltered at the front of that sanctuary. I lost 10 pounds in water weight that (laughs) moment. If it wasn't nerve-wracking enough, we had the heat there with us that day. But last Saturday was June the 30th. It was the birthday of of our blessed nephew and cousin, of my sister's son who died tragically in a car accident just four years ago. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. Those are just the little stories coming out of the home that I know very well. But you could reduplicate those stories over and over again. That is the rapture and the rupture of life the up and the down. And we, according to this text, are to be with each other, like each other, in those moments. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice, and we are to weep with those who weep. Now, I want to simply look at this instruction, this command from Romans chapter 12, verse 15, under a summary sentence with you today, and I want to look at the sentence in two parts. The sentence is this, we are commanded to give proper emotional care to one another as an expression of our love for God and for one another. Let me read that again. This is the summary sentence that I want to simply unpack with you this morning in our time together. We are commanded to give proper emotional care to one another as an expression of our love for God and our love for one another. Now, there's a lot that's packed into that little sentence, and so I'm going to take some time to unpack it. You're going to hear me say that sentence over and over over the course of our time together. I'm going to keep referencing it and try to dig into some of its aspects because I think that what Paul is calling us to here, we have a variety of reactions to when we begin to really get into the particulars of our lives with one another. And I want to just start with that first section. We are commanded to give proper emotional care to one another. And the first thing to note in that sentence and in that instruction is that we are commanded to do this. We are commanded to do this. The voice in Romans 12, 15 is the imperative voice. It is a command that comes down from the Lord. Paul is not saying, I think this is a great suggestion. This, I commend this practice to you. If at all possible, try He says, this is the way in which life in the family of God must be conducted. I command you to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. It's important that we receive it as a command from the Lord because it's unusual and for some of us we'll respond somewhat concerned about the nature of the strength of that command because when we think of God commanding in this sense, joy or commanding, 
weeping or sadness, this expression of sadness, we think, well, I don't usually think of emotions in that way. I don't tend to think of emotions as something that can be controlled or directed or commanded. They just are. They just happen. And we live in a day and time where emotions are often perceived as those things that just take place in our lives, and there's not a lot we can do with them. We just have to honor them and respect them, and there they are. What I want you to see here is that Paul is commanding an emotional response from us. The assumption is that you can do something about your emotional life. The assumption behind his instruction is you don't have to be controlled by what it is that you feel. You don't have to be held captive by it. But those emotions can be directed. They can be guided. They can be steered. And indeed, they must be not for your own felt blessing, but for ministerial purposes, for the care of one another. And I think it's really important for us to hear that this instruction that's given to us from the word is our emotional lives are being commanded or directed by the very word of God in the midst of this instruction. Now, I think the reason that I'm focusing on that for just a second is that there are among us, if we can paint very broadly this morning, and I realize it could be done with greater nuance if we had time, but I'm going to I'm going to paint quite broadly for a second. There's the person among us this morning who just says to themselves, I'm not an emotional person. So this message I'm right now beginning to check out of because this message is really about those emotional people out there who have strong feelings. And maybe there's even an undercurrent in that internal dialogue that says I'm not an emotional per- person and you think to yourself, I'm, I'm more stable than those emotional people. I'm a thinker. I'm a, I'm a doer. And hopefully you can hear in that under, the underbelly of that I'm not an emotional person, a self-righteousness that says thinkers and doers are better than feelers. I want you to see in the context of this passage, Paul is calling our emotional life into service of one another. Our emotional life is for ministry. It's for service to one another. We may think, I just gotta get my thoughts correct, I just gotta get my actions correct, and that's great. We could go to hold your thoughts captive to the word of God. Let yourself be of the mind of Christ. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. There's plenty of passages that we could go to for thinking and doing. That's really important. But feeling is also important to the Lord. His lordship is over every aspect of who it is that we are. So we can't just check out and see if we say, I'm not an emotional person. I'm better than those emotional people. We must be feeling people. And our feelings must be employed and our emotions must be employed for ministerial purposes. Now, the reason that this is the case, just in case you're finding, okay, I see that, but I'm not sure how to what to do with that. I want you to first see the reason that we're emotional people is because God expresses his own self in emotional terms. 
When you begin to look over the pages of Scripture, you realize he's a thinking God, he's a decreeing God, he's an acting God, but he's also a a feeling God. And we have been made in his image. In Genesis 1.25, God says that he looked out upon his creation and he saw that it was good. The language there is not just of a moral goodness, though it includes that. It means to say that he took delight in what he saw. It stirred up joy within God to see the beauty of that which he had made. Just six chapters later in Genesis chapter 6, we looked at this together back in the, the spring. In that grievous moment where we're told that every intention of the thought of mankind was evil continually, that really dark passage and Genesis chapter 6, we're told this about God. The Lord was grieved that he had made man. He was wrecked by what it is that he, he saw. He felt deeply, and his emotion response to that was one of, of grief. In Exodus 25, we read, I, the Lord, am a jealous God. He has a desire for his people. There's an emotional attachment to and a possession of that's appropriate to the nature of God in his relationship to us. Jeremiah 31, I have loved you, he speaks to the people of Israel. He speaks in his new covenant promises to us, Gentiles from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nations. I have loved you with an everlasting love. All throughout the scriptures, we see God expressing himself in emotion, and because of that, he's made us as those who are image bearers of him with emotion. That's not a bad thing. It's an important thing, and it's part of what makes us human, and it's critical that we learn how to employ our emotions as God has designed them for the ministerial purposes of which he has commanded. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene, It's not surprising that we're told that he looks out on the crowds and he has compassion upon them for they are like sheep without a shepherd. As he approaches the cross, he is troubled and he's sorrowful in soul even unto death. Jesus, as the perfect God-man, coming as representative of us and coming as representative of God was a man with a full range of emotional responses, always in righteousness, always holy, always appropriately ministerial with regards to their deployment, but full range in the nature of their expression. So we've got to believe that God feels and has emotions and that we are reflective of that image bearing and that those emotions that he has given to us are to be used for his purposes and we should embrace them and deploy them in such a manner. Now, there's another person among us. I've been talking to the non-emotional, quote unquote, though we don't, none of us are non-emotional. We all have emotions. There's one person, two people, Many of us who feel, I'm a highly emotional person. Some of us think I'm married to that highly emotional person. tend to let their emotions run wild. They are controlled by their emotions. They, They tend to think that feeling by default is just a good thing. 
And, and so they, they give in to those emotions. They would say to themselves, so I'm just being honest or I'm being real, I'm being true to what it is that I, I feel. Not realizing sometimes that their emotions are running roughshod over everyone around them. And instead of ministry, they're inflicting misery on everyone through these emotions. So just because we are created with emotions that God is reflective of those emotions, our emotions are to be used for ministerial purposes. Emotions are disordered among us because of the fall. No longer are they ordered in the fashion in which they ought to be. And so just as your thoughts can go awry unto sin and your actions can go awry unto sin, you can sin emotionally. And so we have to learn in relationship with each other in this rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who, re- who weep, we have to restrain and control and keep in check our emotional lives in relationship to one another. Our emotions are not merely to be felt. Some of us just love to feel. It's how we know we're alive. Others of us just love to cogitate on something, and others just love to do something. It makes us feel good to do something. So we want to do something. We're all wired in a variety of different ways. And the context of this is it's not just the release of the emotions that we want to feel that's important. It's that they're restrained for the purposes of being able to do ministry to another. That our emotional center is not about us, but it's about God, and it's about the needs of those whom he's put us in contact with. So I want you to see, and then just kind of in conclusion, no matter which person you are, if you're that person who, who is quote unquote not emotional or that person who's overly emotional, you, you both have something to wake up to and you both have something to die to. You both have some, you maybe need to cultivate better knowledge and identification of your emotions to be directed and deployed for ministry purposes because you just never know how you feel and you try not to ever feel. And then some of us who feel so much need to restrain ourselves. We need to identify those emotions, direct them and deploy them differently than the way that we are. We all have something to grow in the midst of this instruction with regards to rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. Now, here's what I want you to see implicit in Paul's instruction. Paul's implicit instruction in the nature of that command in verse 15 is he's saying, God is glorified when we feel what we ought to feel in relationship with each other. For him to command this, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. He's saying God will be glorified when you feel what you ought to feel in relationship with one another. So if you this morning are feeling as just experienced my 17th anniversary yesterday, so I'm feeling especially close to my wife. If I'm feeling close to my wife, feeling sacrificial, maybe in a way that I might not feel on other occasions, then God is pleased with that because what is the nature of the love relationship that I'm to have with my wife is that I am to die to my own interests to take up her interests in order to see her blessed and flourish. God rejoices at that. If I'm feeling grief over my sin, God rejoices over that because grief is the appropriate response to sin. If I feel compassion 
towards those who are needy. And then that compassion gives way to a feeling of generosity and an action of generosity toward another. You know what? God, God rejoices in that. He delights in that because it's an appropriate response to seeing those who are need, who are in need. The problem here is that sin has disordered the nature of our emotions that we don't often feel those things as we ought to feel them. We see the needy and we don't often feel compassion. We think, I don't want to walk by that person asking for money. That homeless individual makes me nervous. I think I'll look in the opposite direction. And to feel compassion, to feel drawn, we may feel actually cynical. I bet they hadn't even looked for a job. Bet they could have gotten a job. All kinds of internal dialogue going on. And feel compassion, feel all kinds of other things. Uh, sometimes we sin, don't we? And we sin and we look at the sin and we just go, I'm not grieved by that. It doesn't bother me. In fact, I like it. I think I might do it again. God is not pleased when our emotional responses to the things are out of the court or disordered from the nature of the way in which we ought to respond. That's the nature of fallenness within us. And when we look at the context of this particular verse, he's telling us that there are specific emotional responses we should have to specific emotional circumstances and encounters with others. If we're taking this verse, the way it would be disordered, it would look like this. We, we weep over those who rejoice. And we rejoice over those who weep. And we do that, by the way, when we see a certain person that we don't like very much, maybe someone who's hurt our feelings, done us wrong in the past, and then we see them now going through a painful time, oh, we just feel so brokenhearted for them. No, not at all. We think to ourselves, serves them right. Serves them right. That, that's appropriate. I hope they get what it is that is coming to them. We actually may feel a little sadistic delight over the fact that they're suffering in the way that they're, they're suffering because we feel like they should get what it is that they gave to us. When we see someone on Facebook, you know, taking that vacation we want to take. We see someone getting that recognition that we think we should get. We're just filled with joy for them. No. We think to ourselves... They shouldn't get that. We become jealous. We become envious. We may even get, get mad. You see, in the context of this sentence that we've, we're looking at, it's not just the commanding of a particular emotion. It's the commanding of the proper emotional care. The proper emotional care. What we mean by that is the kind of emotional care that's in keeping with righteousness, with what is right. The way Paul puts it is, we are to weep with those who weep, we are to rejoice with those who rejoice. Our emotional response is not to be derived from how we particularly feel, but how the other person is feeling how the other person is feeling. What's fascinating 
about the nature of this instruction is Paul is saying your emotional life should be centered around the emotional needs of those who are around you. Your emotional life should mirror, pace with, and be patterned by the emotional needs of those who are around you. The focus of the passage is not on how do I feel about what it is that's going on. It's how do they feel and how can I feel along with them in their feeling in order to care for them. How can I feel along with them in their feeling? That's exactly the nature of the instruction here. It's captured by the Greek word empathy. Empathy. It's a word that means in feeling with another, to take up, as it were, the life experience, the emotional climate and temperature of another. Not in order just to feel it, just to feel it, but in order to care for them. You see, it's one of the most miraculous things about the nature of someone feeling along with you in the care of another is that it's not the fixing of what's wrong, but it's the feeling with what's wrong or what's right that is its own healing. You can look back over the experiences of your own life and when you have cried on somebody's shoulder who constantly was telling you how to do something or do it better or get over it, it's exactly when you didn't get over it or get better. But it was in the moments when you cried on the shoulder and the person whose shoulder you cried on cried with you. And it's, it's when those moments where you came to the person about something that was joy-filling in your own life and you could see on the, the, the morphology of their face, on the smile that they gave, upon the tone of their voice, that they weren't just parroting. Isn't that nice? They were entering into the very joy that you had. And in the moment of entering that joy with you, your joy increased all the more. It's by actually doing what Paul calls us to do in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, which is do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourself. Look not to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. You see, that's the spirit of the call of the Christian. To do that in the, the midst of our sufferings in the midst of our joys. Do you know when you do that in the midst of the suffering, it, if you've experienced that from someone or done that in relationship with another, there's several things that happen. One is the suffering begins to be lessened. The weight of that moment is alleviated. The being alongside or the withness actually diversifies the burden. And the second thing that happens is in the diversification of that burden, an intimacy is forged. A relationship is actually joined. A kind of oneness is created. And in that oneness, a trust is engendered. And a love and affection becomes part and parcel. And all of a sudden, we realize that the issue was not fixing what was wrong. It was being with what was wrong in the midst of the feeling of the person. And in doing so, we found exactly what it is that we needed. In the joy piece, as C.S. Lewis has made quite clear in his Surprised by Joy and in other writings, when our joy is shared, it's actually doubled. 
When our sorrows are shared, our sorrows are lessened. But when our joys are shared, they're doubled. There's an exponential nature to them. There's nothing more defeating than to come to someone with some exciting news and for them not to be excited. Right? You know this experience. You're going to someone and something exciting has happened in your life and you're waiting. You've got an anticipated and expected response from them that's subconsciously there in your mind and you share it with them and you can just tell immediately, nope, they're not with me on this. And immediately you're just going to go, okay, let's go on to some other subject. Let me find someone else who can genuinely appreciate what it is that's, that's, that's happening here. The importance of this so that my own joy can be sustained and increased over the thing that is joyous. Do you see that pacing emotionally in care and allowing the center of what others need emotionally to be our emotional center becomes actually the very pattern of Christian ministry. In fact, if you don't have this center, often all the thinking in the world and all the doing in the world without that emotional connection will come off tawdry and flat, superficial and shallow, seeming to miss the meaningfulness of the thing. There's this beautiful scene in Dostoevsky's The House of the Dead a difficult book in some ways to read, but the scene is moving. Uh, one criminal alongside another, watching the other criminal slowly but surely ebb away and his life begin to fade. A hardened criminal done terrible things, looking at the other begins to tear up as he sees the other one begin to die. In conversation with the guard, who's watching them and noticing the emotion, the criminal turns to the one who's about to die and the one who's reflecting upon his death. And he says of him, you know what? He also has a mother. He also has a mother. In the moment, that criminal who might just be a, a caricature or a, or a byword for many of us, became a human. But why? Because in that moment, we felt along with. We saw the person for who it is that they were. They were a person. He also has a mother. That he also has It's part of the spirit of empathy. It's beginning to see ourselves not as distant from one another, but united with one another. The very heart of empathy is entering into imaginatively what it would be like to be in that one's shoes, to go through it. And in many cases, to enter into your own experiences of whether it was suffering or joy and to realize that that's what it would feel like and call upon that experience as the means by which we can mirror and help the other be cared for in their joy and in their sorrow. You see, really, when I, take, when I say it this way, it's like putting yourselves in another's shoes What I'm actually saying at the heart of this kind of care is the principle of substitution. It's the principle of substitution. It's putting yourself in the midst of what another's going through. 
And when I put it that way, all of a sudden you see why it is the Apostle Paul is instructing us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Because at the core of that instruction is a gospel reality. The prophet Isaiah put it this way. Surely he, that is Jesus, took up our pain. Surely Jesus bore our suffering. And yet we considered him punished by God, stricken and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When the prophet Isaiah begins to unfold this future gospel sacrifice that's coming, whom we know as Jesus Christ, he says, here comes the one who doesn't just feel alongside of you. He does that. But here's the one who gets in your shoes, who becomes made like you in every way, yet without sin, and takes upon himself all of the wreckage of your suffering, all of the undoing of your sin. He brings it upon himself. Why? So that the suffering would be removed. That the curse would be removed. That the destruction and the devastation due to you for the sin that you feel and the guilt that's real upon you would be removed. He bore it. All of our iniquity placed upon him. And that Jesus who died on the cross for our sins raised on the third day in victory, right now is at the right hand of the Father, and you know what he's doing? He's weeping with you, if you're weeping. And he's rejoicing with you, if you're rejoicing. Because the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was made like us so that he might sympathize with all of our weaknesses. That the fullness of our experiences, he right now lives to make intercession for in heaven. Parents, you know this all too well. And friends, you, you know this all too well. How much of your emotional life is completely controlled by other people. Years ago, Timothy Keller said that a parent is only ever as happy as their worst off child. That's one way to put it. It's only ever as happy as their worst off child. It's very true for spouses. It's very true for friends as well. Our emotional centers are bound up in, into one another. That interceding for, that being connected with, when we begin to understand that the Lord Jesus Christ took on all of that suffering for us, 
and now lives to make intercession for us. He's in the midst of it with us, even as you walk through it right now. And that one day, he's preparing a place for you so that he would be able to say, as he said in the parable in Matthew chapter 25, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Why does he call it joy? Because he's taking us to the place where we won't ever have to weep with one another again. Because he's going to wipe away every tear. And he's going to remove every sorrow. And he's going to right every wrong. And we will be in a place of heaven that will be full of love. And all of what are the shadowy perfections of this life will become the ultimate realities of the life that is to come. He will enter into, we will enter into the joy of our master. How in the possible, how could it be possible that we would enter into the joy of our master? Because he entered into the grief and the guilt of our sufferings. He broke the power of sin over us in order to welcome us into the power of his everlasting joy. Now all of a sudden you realize, I have a resource in Jesus. I have a power in the gospel. When I see someone weeping, I know that Jesus has already wept for me. I know that Jesus has already been crucified for me. I know that his whole life was wrecked so that mine could be made so I can enter into the emotional wreck of another in order that they too might learn to enter into the joy of their master. You see, friends, when we begin to really sit in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, reflecting on Romans chapter 12, we begin to see these are not just therapeutic patterns and parallelisms. These are gospel realities. This just doesn't make us feel warm and fuzzy and help us get through life as a coping mechanism. No, this is the very center of all existence. That we have a Savior who wept for us and he took on all of our suffering to remove it. And we have a Savior who's invited us into his joy. And we will for all eternity enter into that joy with thanksgiving in our hearts and into his courts with praise. Friends, I pray that you wouldn't just be so self-centered like I am when it comes to your emotional responses to others around you. And I pray that you wouldn't be so enslaved by others' emotions that you simply pantomime after them as a technique or analyze their emotion as something to be understood and deconstructed, but that you'd enter into it in love and you'd weep with them and you rejoice with them because you have been wept over and you are being rejoiced over with singing through his love. Now take his love and weep and shout and live with the fullness of the emotional range of gospel power. 
Father in heaven, I would ask that you would today, by your grace, begin to awaken us to this reality. That for those of us who are emotionally numb and maybe even depressed this day coming in, that you would, in your grace, help us to be patient and sit in this message with your love until we are awakened. And Lord, for those of us who have used our emotions in ways that have been manipulative and deceitful and hurtful, and we've caused so much collateral damage, I pray today you would grant to us self-control and restraint and wisdom. Not to, not to stifle and suppress emotion, but to direct it and deploy it in a manner that's consistent with the way that we've been cared for by you. Lord, we need to say so many more things on this subject. This is only the beginning. And so, Father, I would simply ask that you would give to us a wisdom that's not been spoken today and a truth that may be deeper than even the one that's unfurled and that we would begin to, through the power of your Spirit, Submit to his way. And with joy, rejoice. And with weeping, weep. And in love, do it for one another. In response to your love for us. Come now, we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.